a complex world brimming with new ambitions, the best leaders create the best workplaces. This is the Oil & Gas Digital Doers podcast, where you can hear real stories about digital capabilities and a culture of empowerment with your host, Joanne Meyer. So welcome back to the Oil & Gas Global Network's Digital Doers podcast. And just as the intro said, I'm Joanne Meyer and I'm your host today. And I'm really excited to be here with a longtime friend and uh, um, entrepreneur and uh, engineer and, and uh, fellow Sooner. So happy to Boomer Sooner. Absolutely. <laughs> and good to be here, Joanne. To Ashley Zumwalt Forbes. And we're going to talk about all kinds of things. But before we get started, I do want to take a few minutes to say thank you to those of you who hit all the right buttons so you could join us today. Um, would also like to say thank you to our sponsor, HPE. If you get a chance, go to hpe.com and take a look at, in particular, their new platform. It's called their GreenLake platform. And it's all about bringing the cloud to you. So they call it their edge to cloud platform and as they say, it's all about bringing that experience to you, regardless of whether you're on-prem or you're out in a public commercial. Um, it's all about uh, making uh, that experience easier for, you, easier for you, whether you've got co-locations, at your edges, just wherever your data and apps reside. So uh, take a look at hpe.com because uh, uh, they make this possible so we can have interesting conversations like we're going to have today with Ashley. And again, we're on the oil and gas global network. That is the largest network of oil and gas podcasts in the world. Um, so uh, check out uh, the other podcasts that are available. But let's get jump into the one that we're you're on you're listening to today, which is the digital doers. And so um, Ashley, um, which I'm going to have to get used to, but we're going to, I'm going to practice on this uh, podcast, calling her Ash. And um, she is an um, entrepreneur in the oil and gas and um, mining industries. And she's done some really interesting things in addition to being a Forbes 30 under 30 and then now a 40 under 40. And just so I could tell you, she can be a 40 under 40 for many years. And that's the goal. <laughs> that is the goal, yes. So Ashley, um, tell us a little bit about, about you. Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me on, Joanne. I'm really excited to catch up today. Um, so I, my, my background, I, I would say, is is. Uh, qu quite the adventure to walk through. Um, so I, my, my background's petroleum engineering, very much started in the oil and gas space at ExxonMobil, ended up wanting to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. And so took a real right-hand turn um, in, into more of the entrepreneurial resources space. Um, and instead of, of start, the the, the uh, starting a company that that I actually knew anything about in the oil and gas space, um, the the first one that that Rhett Bennett, um, the CEO of Black Mountain, and I started was called Black Mountain Metals, 
Um, Black Mountain Metals, very much a play on energy transition and electrification. But if, if you look at that, you know, we weren't interested in, in taking a view or a position on which technology would win out, but we rather wanted to be the raw material that all technologies needed. And so across that spectrum, there are kind of two groups of, of things, if you will, that, that these technologies need. One is electrification metals. So your nickel, your copper, your cobalt, your lithium. Um, the other group of metals that these technologies need um, are called rare earth metals. And that's where you start to get really exotic. So it's your neodymium, your praseodymium, um, metals that folks have probably not heard of a, a tremendous amount of times, but all of these things are really critical to energy transition. And so with Black Mountain Metals, um, I effectively moved to Perth in 2018. Um, and set up a fully uh, a fully focused nickel mining company. So we bought one nickel mine called Land Frankie and then took a 20% stake in a publicly traded company called Poseidon. Um, we ended up selling Black Mountain Metals um, about mid last year, which was a, a, a really good um, and exciting transaction. So that was in 2018. In 2019, um, we bought 1.7 million acres in northern Western Australia in a frontier basin called the Canning Basin. So for the second company, decided to kind of come back around to things that I know a little bit about. Um, so, you know, that was very much a natural gas thematic, um, really focused on being a source of supply close to Asian markets. Um, Asian LNG, I mean, particularly today, but but at the time in, in 2019, those prices are significantly elevated compared to, to prices you can get in North America. And so, um, you know, acquiring that acreage and starting to remove the barriers to commercialization um, was was all about um, all about bringing that gas to market. And so we IPO'd that company on the ASX December twenty third of twenty twenty one. You'll hear consistently twenty twenty one was a really big year for me. I would say it was a really bad year, frankly, trying to get all of these transactions done, but um, did, did end up kind of. Um, kept coming out of it. And, and this year has been much more steady state, which I'm really appreciative of. <laughs> um, and, and then um, after that, um, in 2021, we uh, launched a SPAC called Metals Acquisition Corp. The SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, which is basically a cash box that sits on the public markets. We raised 267 million US dollars um, to go buy at, at, at an energy transition mining asset. In March of this year, we announced that we would buy CSA from Glencore, which is a copper mine in New South Wales. Um, so that's a, a really big focus of mine. And then lastly, um, I bought a significant stake in a private company in Houston called Recycle. Um, this happened late last year as well. Um, and Recycle takes permanent magnets out of hard drives, MRI machines, wind turbines, EVs, 
and recycles them to create rare earth oxides. So you heard at the very beginning, I talked about their energy transition metals and then their rare earths. Um, now I have exposure on both sides, which um, it, it was, was something I was, I was very keen to do. Wow. So if I am counting correctly, I think I heard four different companies kind of under this umbrella called Black Mountain. Yes. So, um, so there was Black Mountain Metals. Yes. And then what was your the natural gas exploration? Black Mountain Energy. Okay. Okay. And then, um, so those are certainly under the Black Mountain umbrella. Um, Rhett has been prolific across his career. So there have been something like 12 different Black Mountain companies since since he founded it in 2007. Um, I, I was lucky enough to, to be part of, of Black Mountain Metals and Black Mountain Energy. Metals Acquisition Corp. involves some Black Mountain folks and some external folks. Okay. Um, and then Recycle is an external venture. Completely um so not under the Black Mountain umbrella at all. That's right. Okay, so that's something that Ash Incorporated did. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Um, so you have been busy. I have been busy. Because if I'm counting correctly, and I probably won't, but you haven't been out of school effectively <laughs> that long. I mean, you you graduated in eight, nine from OU with a petroleum engineering degree? Actually, I graduated in 2012 from uh, OU. All right, 12, yes. 2012. Yes. And then um, you worked for a couple of years for Exxon. I did. And then you went back to school. I did. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, so... Um, you're exactly right. Graduated from OU Petroleum Engineering in 2012, um, worked as a drilling and completions engineer, rotating international shale exploration for three years. It was awesome. So it was a really, really great place to start my career. I personally really like rotating. Um, I also really like being out in the field. I think it's a fantastic way to learn the business and actually understand how things work. Yeah. So when you say rotating, you were 28 on, 28 yes. off. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. So I was on 28-28 schedule, okay. Okay. Um, which is a little more typical for international rotators. So I was all over the place. My biggest assignment was in Argentina, um, not Buenos Aires, but in out in Nilken working the Vaca Muerta shale. Um, and so, um, so a after kind of doing three years at Exxon, um, look, I did really love the job, but I knew that I wanted to be more entrepreneurial. So ended up leaving ExxonMobil in 2015 and going to get an MBA at Harvard Business School in Boston, um, which was a really fun two years. Also a really transformative two years. Um, so it was fun. It was fun. But I also <laughs> remember it was a little hard, time-consuming. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. so um, it, it was a really transformative experience. So I didn't have a full-time job for two years, which is a real change going from, you know, um, making a, a good oil-filled salary to making negative money and actually <laughs> paying a lot of money to go back to school. Um, it was an incredibly busy experience, but I think where it was most helpful for me personally is... I have always been so um, so specialized and so specific within the global economy. You know, I'm from a small town in Oklahoma. I went into the oil field. Um, HBS was really helpful as a broadening experience. So I got to just see 
what else is out there, how other people contribute to the economy, really what levers there are to create value. And so coming out of that, I just felt much better positioned to go and be broadly an energy entrepreneur. So, you know, the first company we started was was focused on, on uh, you know, metals, um, which is, is certainly not something that I even had on my radar pre-HBS. Right, right. So that's fascinating. So tell me, because I remember when you were finishing um, from HBS, we had a conversation uh, one time, and you were thinking about a couple of different places. (laughs) And I remember you um, saying you had an opportunity to go with another large, I think, very large, well-established and uh, but you were drawn to what was going on at Black Mountain, and in particular, is the name Rhett? Rhett, yeah. In particular, and I remember you making a comment about why that was. I don't know if you remember why that might have been. Um, I, well, I can tell you the way I always describe it today, and I bet it was the same. But I always said Rhett is who I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> what a great yes, yeah, right. yes. The other thing I remember you saying is you felt like in this newer, younger organization that you felt like you could have um, a voice at the table more quickly. Exactly. And you would have an opportunity to actually shape and build something as opposed to coming in and making something that exists better. You, you, you did have that entrepreneurial of wanting to, to, to build something. That's exactly right. Um, and you know, it, it was a little bit fortuitous how it happened. I never like to 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 say something was was lucky. In this instance, I'm going to use it because, frankly, it, it was quite lucky the way things worked out. Um, I think mostly you create your own luck. Um, but so when I I graduated from HPS in May of 2017, signed my Black Mountain job offer in like April of 2017 to join August 1st. Between me signing my offer and joining the company, Rhett actually sold Black Mountain Oil and Gas. So the company that I was going to wow. join, he sold the company. Wow. So I kind of turned up on the first day and I was like, look, man, like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I was like, I, you know. Where's the oil and gas for me to manage? Right? What, what, what should I be doing here? Right. Um, and to his credit and, and largely, um, you know, what set me on this path is he said, I don't know, go figure it out. Right. Um, and so out of that came black mountain metals. Wow. Wow. And I, I think you did a, a a fair amount of traveling around the world, uh, as you were trying to figure that out as Rhett. A fair amount. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, something specifically about kind of the metal space is the U S has done honestly, just a very bad job at developing any sort of, of mining operations or, or mining activity. Um, do we have some supply? I mean, what do our geologists tell us? Do we have some? We, we have some. We do have some. Um, it takes about 15 to 20 years to get a new mine permitted in, in, in the U.S. And so what that means is you know, that's such a considerable time frame that no one can take a real investment, 
um, look at new opportunities. In the U.S. In the U.S. In the U.S. And so we've gotten to a position where because permitting is so, so challenging for new mines, second to that, um, if you look at oil and gas versus mining from a risk profile, Oil and gas risk is very much upfront. So if you're if you're a wildcatter, you're going out, you're drilling these wells, you know pretty quickly have if it's a commercial discovery or if it's not. On the mining side, it's backweighted. Um, it's years. It's years before. I mean, so th- there there's a tremendous period of of exploration where you're having to. Um, put these drill holes in the ground and try to piece together a deposit that you can then build a mine plane around and, and try to get the mine up. Oftentimes, after people have gone through these decades of exploration, putting together a mine plan, building the mine, the mine doesn't make money. It doesn't work. You know, maybe you can't crack the processing code. Um, maybe there's some other nuance that you just didn't pick up before the mine was built. And so the risk is backweighted. And so it does make the dynamic quite challenging, um, particularly in the U.S., where not only do you have that entire dynamic, but then you have this insane permitting um, uh, process on the front end, just making it so long dated. And so I traveled a lot. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, pretty quickly determined, you know, unfortunately, we just can't do can't do much in the U.S., um, Canada and Australia are two very, very active mining jurisdictions. Tremendous amount of mines, very mining friendly. Um, interestingly, it, it's a little bit inverse to the U.S. So the U.S., you know, particularly in a place like Texas, you can get a permit for an oil well really quickly. Um, but a mine, it would it would take a considerable amount of time. In Canada and Australia, it's much quicker from a mining perspective, much slower from an oil and gas perspective. So in Australia, it's taking us every bit of three years to get a permit to drill a gas well. So that's a digression, but it is interesting just to see how different jurisdictions risk weight different activities. And so um, as we were starting Black Mountain Metals, you know, we were focused on either nickel or copper. Um, and, and, um, if, if you're looking at where nickel is mined, uh, specifically nickel sulfide, which I won't bore you about why we wanted nickel sulfide, but, um, the three kind of dominant, uh, production areas are, uh, Norilsk in Russia. So we're Americans, you know, couldn't invest in Russia at the time, certainly can't now. Um, the second is Sudbury in Canada. Um, it's Sudbury is fantastic, um, but it's very much controlled by by Vale and Glencore. And so we looked at it and said, you know, I, I don't know how we could play a role in this. It's very much owned by two of the largest mining companies in the world. And then the third area is in Australia. Um, so it's it's a it's a basin called Kimbolda. And so when we looked at Kimbolda, um, it was it the ownership was very fragmented. And so it was owned by, 
you know, let's call it five different at the time undercapitalized juniors. I say at the time because, you know, that entire area and sector has had a revitalization and those companies are well capitalized now. Um, But at the time, you know, we saw an opportunity to go in, provide capital to an undercapitalized space, take an ownership position that was potentially under or that we viewed as undervalued um, and make some money in the nickel space. Um, And so, you know, fast forward to today, that thematic has very much played out. So, you know, we bought nickel mines in 2018 when Tesla was still the most shorted stock in the world. Um, I, I would say that the narrative has certainly played out much more than we could have ever thought. Um, And so that has been a really interesting one to follow. What I will say is I don't think people appreciate just how many metals we need for energy transition to be effective. Um, Even if you're looking at a very, very um, kind of low estimate of of how many vehicles we're going to be building, how many wind turbines we're going to be building. Like we need a tremendous amount of mines to be built and that is not happening today. In fact, um one of my biggest soapboxes, but you know, we've done a tremendous amount of talking to capital allocators about the mining space. And especially over the last kind of 3ish years, folks have set up a lot of ESG funds. And you would think an ESG fund or an energy transition fund, this mining of electrification metals would be straight down the fairway. Um, It's not. So people kind of view mining as dirty business, but everything that flows from it as clean. And so what I always challenge people to think about is the supply chain as, as a whole, and we really need to track both carbon accounting and um, uh, kind of um, uh, how, how ethically things are produced all the way along the supply chain from the raw material to the finished product in order to actually certify that the finished product is clean. Um, and that's currently not a focus today. I will say there have been some real standout companies that have done a fantastic job of raising awareness on this. Um, one being Polster, which is an electric vehicle company um, uh, it partially owned by Volvo. Um, so, and they have done an amazing job at, at really raising awareness of, of the entire supply chain in trying to source metals from ethically mined, environmentally friendly mine sites. Um, that I think is where everyone will head and inevitably where people need to head because if you're looking at the actual impact, exactly. Yes. And You know, if you're just indirectly subsidizing an industry, i.e. buying the material but completely blind to how it's being mined, you don't have an ability to impact the way things are done. If you're being very purposeful in tracking these metrics, you can really change behaviors in what is historically perceived to be a dirty industry. Um, Therefore, making it cleaner, cleaning up your supply chain and making the end products cleaner. Right. Yeah positively impacting the environment. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I want to just make this point. You you said the name of the company is Polster. Yes. And it's spelled Polestar. It is. Is that correct? That's exactly right. It, so we'll put a link 
yes. in the show notes for our audience if you would like to check out. Um, they're not as heavily advertised. Don't see that quite as much, although they're partially Swedish company. Yes. So maybe there's more so in Europe. But we'll put a link to their website as well um, because I think that's a really great point. It's like... Um, I have a, a really good friend one time who made the comment to me when we were talking about some social issues. And he said, do you want to feel better or do you want to do better? And so I think sometimes this notion of, well, all we want is the metal or the mineral, and then we're going to put it in this good thing called an electric vehicle, and we're going to say we're good, uh, is missing the point about the carbon emitted and other things that go on when you're trying to get that good thing. Exactly. And so um, I, I fear sometimes there's a bit of this wanting to feel better Yes. Um, that we all get caught up in. So um, I like that. Thanks for that. I shout out to really them. like that framing though. Do you want to feel better or do you want to yeah. do better? Yeah. Because Sometimes you don't get to feel better in the near term. That's right. To do better. Yeah. Um, but so that's really interesting about, um, you know, well, the 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 differences in the policy in the regulations between the company companies between the countries, and how important those policies can uh, they are in in impacting um, practices and activities and behaviors. Not a surprise there, but it does seem like sometime, and we did not set this up to be bashing the U.S. Of course not, yes. But I do think our policies seem short-sighted or, and I use this term in the purest sense, or ignorant. I, I, it's hard for me to believe that, that people don't really understand the science, the, but, but I, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps that's it. I don't know. So I wish I could, could, could really answer that question around, um, around why we are where we are. Um, frankly, I don't know. Um, however, I offer a comparison, um, and the comparison being China. So uh, completely different government structures, completely different countries. I'm also not recommending that we become more like China. <laughs> However, what they have done in the metal supply chain space is impressive. Um, because their government is, is very command and control, they have much longer kind of strategic plans and, and are able to carry things out over decades. Whereas, you know, our presidents and, and politicians are, are much shorter term, right? They're focused on being reelected, um, you know, uh, dramas between the, the political parties, et cetera. That's not a dynamic that happens in China. Um, and so really what they've been able to do um it, it's uh, unprecedented. It's I, very I think focused, it's, it's very focused, yeah. um, and it's really around this Belt and Road strategy. And so, um, you know, something you always you always hear about from China is they've made tremendous inroads into into um, numerous countries in Africa, numerous countries in South America, starting to get more involved in Latin America, and the way that they did this 
was by sponsoring major infrastructure projects. Um, so building dams, building ports, building railroads. And this, it's called Belt and Road, this Belt and Road strategy really, really built very strong relationships between China and those countries. And what it's really resulted in is many of those countries, um, effectively their entire resource space is operated by Chinese companies. And so, China has a tremendous amount of upstream assets of their own. However, coupled with the assets that they indirectly control, they are far and away, you know, world world leader in 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 controlling these assets. These the the metals and the minerals that's going to be play such a role in the energy transition. That's right. And I also always like to highlight it's actually not just an energy transition story. Um, let's say we just pushed pause on energy transition today. So we said, don't do anything with the grid. We're all going to stay in internal combustion engines. Even in that case, we need a tremendous amount of these metals. You know, our cell phones, we have lithium ion batteries, our hard drives, every single hard drive has a permanent magnet that's made from rare earth metals. Um, Rare earth metals are one of the more egregious examples of Chinese control. So China controls upwards of 95% of the rare earth supply chain. The U.S. has one rare earth mine. It's called Mountain Pass. It's in California. Um, The ore that is mined out of Mountain Pass is sent to China for processing. So we have done a terrible job, not just as the U.S., but really as the Western world, um, trying to be strategic around the things that are required in the goods that we are now fully reliant on. Wow. Um, even more scary than just like cell phones and computers and, you know, wireless communication. Um, it's defense technologies and satellites that do require a tremendous amount of these metals, specifically rare earth metals. Um, and and it, it's not something that you can pick up resources and move them to a new place in the world. Um, and so that's why I ended up, I, I ended up buying the stake in Recycle because it's effectively the only way for the West to create a Western supply chain of rare earth metals. So it takes spent permanent magnets, recycles them down into rare earth oxides that can then be used to create new products. Wow. So we may have to, it appears as if we may have to buy initially from China. 100%. But once we get that, then Ashley, Ash (laughs) is going to take over and we are going to get our supply on the second kind of generation of that. I, so yes, yes, that is exactly right. Um, what I will say on the recycling side, both for, for recycle and for lithium ion battery recycling companies like, like Lifecycle or like Redwood, love the business model. So amazing business model. Unfortunately, you just can't, um, you can't replace primary supply coming out of mines with, with recycled material. It can take up a wedge, it, but Got there's it. just not enough. It's not 
it, it's not 100 percent you lose you lose some exactly yeah. Yeah. exactly sure. um however it you know it can take up a chunk if you just look toward the future there's so much more demand yes. um than than what there was historically so right. inherently you can't take that material recycle it and and you don't need any more right. new material so that's that's interesting very very it's interesting. wild Excellent. yeah so if i'm keeping track of all the companies <laughs> and where they're oh no yeah <laughs> And where they're located. Yes. Um, I think you have uh, um, a good portion of your team that's on the other side of the world. Yes. Yes. Um, actually, I, I don't, it, you know, over time, I, I've kind of joked, I must be a glutton for punishment on these crazy time zones. Um, uh, certainly, you know, with Black Mountain Metals and then Black Mountain Energy, everyone either was or is in Perth which for those of you who don't know is plus 13 hours from Texas. So literally directly opposite. Um, <laughs> it's great. It's a great work-life balance. Um, and then um, on, on Metals Acquisition Corp, this is, I actually really love this example because we IPO'd, or we'll call it MAC. MAC is the acronym. Um, we IPO'd MAC obviously like during the pandemic. So August 2nd of 2021. The CEO is a is a guy who's based in Perth, although travels quite a bit. The CFO is a guy who's based in Toronto. Oh. This the chief development officer is a guy who's based in London. The board is spread between kind of uh, mostly Australia and the United States. Um, and so, if you look at that. It, it, it is a creation that could have only been born out of kind of post-pandemic life. Um, because I do think, you know, COVID obviously was horrible um, in so many ways. However, the way that we have been able to become more effective being remote um, and also have these far-flung teams that you're accomplishing real large goals um, with, like, that, that's impressive. Um, and it's something that I, I can only kind of look at it and laugh, but, but certainly it's, it's been an evolution. Well, since we call this the digital doers platform, yes. so clearly I don't think that would have been possible without some pretty fundamental and basic technologies. So can you say just a little bit about how technology has enabled you to do what you do or um, and Black Mountain and, and your et cetera, teams. et cetera. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, I mean, absolutely. So, um, I do think there's just been this huge culture shift where, you know, we have started treating video conferencing very much like meeting in person. Um, and it's something that, you know, um, it's certainly we, we've had to roll out um, uh, across the companies. Um, Australia actually hard closed their borders. So you could not get into Australia, even if you wanted to, um, until March of 2022. So from March of 2020, all the way through March of 2022, they were completely closed. Um, Wow. And so what that means is we've gotten really good at video conferencing. We've gotten really good at file sharing services and having effectively, um, instead of server-based um, data collection, it's much more cloud-based. And, and, um, and, and lastly, like 
we've just become much more competent with sharing ideas and collaborating over email as opposed to having to be in the same room or always having to be on the phone. Because those time zones, it's like hard to get everybody on the, on the same phone call. Right. And, and awake. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, and, you know, the reality is, and you mentioned it, we do have lives. Exactly. We do have lives. We do. Outside of work. And yes. um, I, I was in uh, Melbourne. Uh, one time just for a week, but I remember the 2 a.m. phone calls with the states, mm -hmm. uh, just trying to be awake. Thank goodness it wasn't video at the time because that would have been quite scary. <laughs> but, it can be, yes. <laughs> but um, so that's uh, so. But but I remember that just playing havoc with my biorhythms for nothing else, mm -hmm. uh, um, just being very difficult. So try doing that for about five years. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, you're you all over the place. You've got to be all, all over, over the place. All over. My time zones are bizarre, yeah. but you, you do find a rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Ashley, this has been fascinating. I, I, it's, it's, you know, there's just so much in your story um, from a, a couple of, think about this, a couple of girls from small town Oklahoma. Yeah. You know, sitting here uh, with you sharing about the global impact that you've had um, just since, you know, getting out of school. Um, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. I think it's a testament to what's available today and can, be, can happen, whether it's enabled by technology or new attitudes. And it's very exciting, very exciting stuff. Um, I'd like to have you back again sometime and just speak specifically about this recycle. Love that yes, idea. That would yes, be so fascinating. Absolutely. And uh, so do you have um, a well? Have you spudded in the canning? canning? We have not. So we are... The canning is the right is the okay. right framing. Um, we are currently going through EPA environmental approvals, anticipated to get that approval early next year, um, which means we'll have a big drilling campaign in 2024. Great. Great. Yes. Great. Well, that would be exciting. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you again, Ashley, for joining us today. It's wonderful to have you. And I called you Ashley through the entire, <laughs> I, <laughs> after yes. declaring that I would do better. But <laughs> Old habits die yeah, hard. They do. No, they do. no, they no. Do. But thank you so much for being here. And, um, and uh, then I'd also want to be sure and say again how much we appreciate HPE for being our sponsor. And so uh, we'll say goodbye to Ashley. Bye. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it was wonderful. And we will see you next time on the Oil & Gas Global Network's Digital Doers Podcast. Bye-bye. Come back next week for another venture into the real world of the best digital doers in the oil and gas industry. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.